You're listening to Radio Luke's Listen. I'm your host, Steve Matthews. Thanks for joining me for episode 73. And the title of this episode is Christmas Eve, Eve 2021. Well, Merry Christmas to everyone. I'm coming to you here on December 23rd, 2021. So I suppose you could call this Christmas Eve, Eve. I I hope everybody's uh, enjoying themselves and has had a good week. I'm doing this a little bit early this week. I'm going to be busy tomorrow evening on Friday. And and of course, Saturday's Christmas. So I didn't really want to do it do a live stream on on Christmas. That's the normal day that I did this. So I uh, that I normally do the the live stream. So I thought I'd go ahead and uh, give it a shot here tonight on a, on a Thursday. I don't know for some reason I've been messed up this whole week. I keep I keep thinking it's one day behind what it is. I, I've been thinking all day that this is Wednesday, but I, I know it's I know it's Thursday. But part of me just keeps telling me it's Wednesday for whatever reason. I don't know. Somehow I lost a day in there. Anyway. So uh, happy or Merry Christmas Eve Eve to you, and I uh, hope you uh, enjoy the, the program I have here tonight for you. You know, I, I finally did get around to doing my, my own uh, kind of lame Christmas decoration. I think if you, you can see here behind me, this is like the sum total of my Christmas decoration. Let's see if I can move my... Ooh, moving the wrong way here. Yeah, there we go. You can see it right there. there there's my Charlie Brown Christmas tree. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the sum total of my decoration here for for 2021. But you know, I really like that that Charlie Brown Christmas tree, and it, 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 I like the of course I, I like the uh, the Charlie Brown uh, Christmas as well, and that that's what that's from, of course. And I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. But it was kind of funny how I, I got that tree a number of years ago. There was a, a Walgreens uh, close to where I worked. I remember I went in there at lunch to get something, and they had a whole stack of these these boxes with the Charlie Brown Christmas trees in them, and I wanted to to buy one, but I I don't know. I just I didn't do it for whatever reason. And then a, a couple of weeks later, I wanted to go back and get one, and they were gone, and I, I couldn't find any. So anyway, the next Christmas rolls around, and I'm thinking to myself, oh yeah, you know I. I really wanted to get one of those Charlie Brown Christmas trees last year, and I didn't do it. So I'm going to go out and get one now. Well, I couldn't find one anywhere. And it isn't that just the way things work. You know, like if if you don't do something, there's a lot of times if you don't do something right away, if you don't strike while the iron's hot, then when you, you finally decide to get around to doing it, it's it's you, it's you it's too late. You, know, you can't get back and, and do the thing that you want to do. Uh, I, I have that problem a lot, like when I'm uh, – you know, doing research on the web, you know, maybe I'll see a story or see a tweet by somebody and I think, oh, you know, I'd like to, to save that and, and maybe use it on the program. But for whatever reason, I don't save it. Then I try to go back and get it later and I can't find it. So I've, I've trained myself to if I see a story, if I see something that I want to use on uh, on the program or maybe in a blog post or something, I try to get it right away because if I don't, it, it seems like I can't find it. Well, anyway, when that next year came around and I, I went to try to find the Charlie Brown Christmas tree. I couldn't find it anywhere again. And I looked and I looked and I looked at it. It kind of became a quest. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like an Indiana Jones style quest, you know, for the Lost Ark or something like this. And, and I went on this quest to find it. I was driving everywhere all over the place. And I finally found a place that had a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It was at a CVS, uh, actually not too far from me, a CVS drugstore. And I went ahead and I bought it there. And I've jealously guarded it ever since then. Nobody's going to take my Charlie Brown Christmas tree away from me. And so, anyway, that uh, that's how I got that. And I've actually had it for, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess maybe not quite 10 years, but pretty close to it. And I actually had to go out and get it, fix it up a little bit this year because some of the ends of the uh, the branches are falling off. I kind of had to tape them on there. You probably can't see that in the picture because it's too far away. But, yeah, I've kind of had to tape together my my Charlie Brown Christmas tree. 
So anyway, um, there's that. That's that's my Christmas decorations for the year, which I know is kind of lame, but, you know, I, I like it. And, uh, well, I guess we'll just have to go with it. It's the 23rd of December. I'm not doing anything more right now. What I did want to mention, you know, I've been talking the last several weeks, I've talked some about Christmas light displays. And, of course, our neighbors got this big, ginormous Christmas light display. Let me see. I went ahead and uh, actually took a picture of it here tonight. Let me see if I can get this, uh, do a, a screen share and show you the picture of this thing here. Let's take a look. Okay, there you go. Yeah, there's the window. That That's the uh, the Christmas light display. I did that as a, um, using the panoramic shot on my uh, on my phone. And it actually worked out pretty well. You can see they, they've actually got some new things here this year compared to what they had last year. They have these, uh, I think these are new. They're, they're sort of a, uh, oh, it seems like an LED kind of, uh, kind of a Christmas tree there. And, you know, I made kind of a big deal a few weeks back talking about this ginormous Frosty the Snowman. You can see that Frosty the Snowman kind of way back here. It doesn't look nearly as big as what it is. It's got a top hat that comes up to about here, too. But it's that the, just the, the way that panoramic shot goes, it, it doesn't really give you the full size of it. Now, here's something else they added new this year. This is, if you look over here, it's kind of in a bit of a distance, but you can see it's, it's a Grinch. And that's a pretty big Grinch. That Grinch is about the same size as the Frosty. And the top of his hat goes right up here to the, like the second story window of the house. Here we go. So here's a picture, an up close picture I did of the Grinch. And you can see, I mean, I, I come up to maybe about, about here or so, here or so on the Grinch. I'd say this thing is probably a good, maybe 15 feet high from top to bottom. So that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good sized uh, inflatable. Pretty big. And then next to it, and I didn't get a real great picture of it here, but th this is the, the Christmas duck. And I think that's, uh, that's mom's favorite. She always likes to talk about the Christmas duck. And, <laughs> and it's just like a rubber duck with a kind of like a Santa hat thing on it. So anyway, uh, that's our, our neighbor's Christmas lights display this year. It should be, I mentioned that uh, one of the television stations, they came in second place uh, last year for best Christmas light display in the city. And I don't know, maybe they're trying to raise their game here and, and see if they can go for number one. So uh, we'll see what, uh, see what the ranking is here this year when, when all is said and done. And that brings me to another topic. It, it's a topic of the, the best Christmas light display that I've personally ever seen. Now, you know, maybe somebody else is, I'm not saying it's the best Christmas light display ever, but I, I am saying it's the best Christmas light I personally have ever seen. And this was, goes back to 2004. So it goes back, I guess, what, that's 17, 17 years now. That's hard to believe it's been that long. But I had a friend of mine who showed me this video, it was a YouTube video, and she said, you know, you got to see this light display. And so I looked at this thing and it was an amazing light display. It was, you know, it was really pretty, pretty impressive. And I just kind of assumed and she assumed and, and whatnot that it was, you know, at some far distant location, what have you. Well, a few days later, we came to find out that it wasn't far away at all. In fact, it was about 15 or 20 minute drive from my house here in a, a local Cincinnati neighborhood. So we had to go up and go see this thing. So piled in the car one night, went up to see this. And it really was amazing. Now, what these these people had done is they they did a, a, a I don't know how you would describe it, I, I guess, uh, a, a synchronization, I guess you, you would say. They, they synchronized a light display with the 
uh, with a tune uh, by the Trans-Siberian Orchestra called Wizards of Winter. And it was the most, and still remains, you know, the not only just the best and most creative Christmas lights display I've ever seen. And that's true whether you're talking about a, a professional display you might see out somewhere in public or at somebody's house. I mean, th- this thing was really, really well done. In fact, it was so well done, it even got featured on a, a commercial that year, I recall, on television. And to this day, you can actually go out to YouTube, and it is the official video. I guess the band liked it, the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, they liked it, because they featured it, featured it out there. It's, it's on YouTube, and it's, it's even labeled the official video for this particular song called Wizards of Winter by a Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And I don't know if I can, I probably can't play it. I don't know. I think probably that it's probably, my guess would be that it's, uh, it's probably copyrighted. So I'm not going to go ahead and play it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and put a, a link in the show notes. And you can go ahead and click on it. You can go out there and watch it for yourself. And it, it's really impressive. It's about three and a half minutes long. So it's not a long video. I think you'll really enjoy it if you've never seen it before. And you know what's kind of interesting about the Trans Siberian Orchestra is is the work they did. I a lot of the the stuff they did was in the late '90s or early 2000s, and I remember I was working at a, a music store at the time when I, I first heard their their stuff. And a, a lot of my my colleagues at the music store they didn't really they liked the Trans Siberian Orchestra. They thought it was kind of cheesy, kind of I don't know. Uh, not very authentic, etc. But I had a very different opinion, and, and I still do. I, I think the music the Trans-Siberian Orchestra did is really pretty interesting stuff. And, and what they did is they, they combined elements of, uh, of rock music, in particular uh, like heavy metal kind of uh, music, with the classical genre. And, you know, when, when I say that, you know, I know it sounds kind of weird, and, and maybe it wouldn't work, but it actually does work, and and some of the stuff on their albums is is really stunning, uh, really striking, even uh, in some cases glorious, which I know sounds really weird, um, but but it is. And that that particular tune that was used in the light display, that Wizards of Winter, if I had to describe it to you, and as far as I know, it's an original tune with it was done by the the Trans Siberian Orchestra. The way I would describe it is it, it's kind of a cross between. Metallica and Tchaikovsky, which again, I know sounds really weird and you might think to yourself, well, that just isn't going to work. And if somebody had said that to me and described it to me, I said, wow, that's just not going to work. And then I listened to it and it works amazingly well. So anyway, I, I'd encourage you to go out there listen to the, you know, watch the video, listen to the music. It's pretty interesting stuff. And I enjoyed it, and I still do enjoy going back and, and watching that video. The thing about the the original display that they did, and this was this was another thing that was really impressive, is the the way that you listen to the music. Because when we drove up there and, and went to the display, of course, the street was packed with cars. the The music that was being played that, that was synced to the light display, they actually had some kind of a low power FM station. So when you went to the house, you know you would tune your radio to the particular frequency, and the music would play over your car, your car's radio, while you're watching the the lights. I mean, the whole thing was really amazingly sophisticated and well done. And and again, this was something that was just a at, at a house or somebody's house. And I don't know a lot about the the fellow that did that originally, but obviously he was was pretty technically sophisticated and was able to uh, to set all that up 
so again, it was it was very impressive stuff. And it's really impressive even going back and looking at it 17 years later. I, I think it's still very impressive and, and re- remarkably creative. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about here, I wanted to mention the, you know, the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Of course, that's one of my uh, my favorite, I guess, Christmas films, if you will. In fact, I think you could probably say that of any of the Christmas films, and this is true whether you're talking about a live action movie or you're talking about a, a a cartoon, I think you could make the case that it's it's maybe the that it's the most Christian of all of them because of the message and because of the the fact that there's actually an extended passage where Linus reads from of all things the King James version of the book of Luke. I mean, good grief, how did it ever get past the censors, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, it's it's really it's amazing stuff. And there was a an article I found here on uh, on Newsweek. It's uh, dated from December the eighth, twenty twenty one. So this is a new item here, and it's got a headline: "How a Charlie Brown Christmas Came to Be and Almost Didn't." And it's very interesting to read through this. I'll just read through uh, some portions of this article. America fell in love with the show when it first aired on TV back in 1965, and it's been part of our lives ever since. But the story of how Charles Schultz's A Charlie Brown Christmas Special, uh, A Charlie Brown Christmas came to be, is itself an American classic. So is the story of how it almost didn't come to be. But first things first. Things first. The 30-minute Christmas special wasn't birthed by the creative urge. It was commissioned by a commercial sponsor looking to turn the nation's most beloved newspaper cartoon into an animated TV special. We got a call from Coca-Cola, Lee Mendelson, who produced the special, recalled. And they said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever considered doing a Charlie Brown show? And I lied and said, absolutely, we've been thinking about it. And this was on a Thursday, and they said, we have to make a decision on Monday. Can you send us an outline of the show? So I call Mr. Schultz and I tell him, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, I think I just sold a a Charlie Brown Christmas. The bad news is, we have to write it tomorrow, Mendelssohn said. The creatives got to work. Schultz pulled together Mendelssohn and legendary animator Bill Melendez, put an outline together and quickly locked down the sale. The rest was history. The team worked fast. It had only three months to create a script, record it, and make a soundtrack and create 30,000 animation cells from scratch, all before the days of computer animated design. Now, that, that's amazing to me. I, I didn't realize that, you know, that they put this thing together in a period of about three months. That's, uh, that's remarkably fast. And the story here in Newsweek continues. It says, when the special was finished, it wasn't a hit with network executives. The first problem was the laugh track, or lack thereof. Back in the 1960s, it was unimaginable to produce a TV comedy without one. Schultz thought more highly of viewers. He didn't believe they needed to be cued to laugh at predetermined moments. Another disagreement involved the voice work. CBS executives wanted to use adult actors who pretended to be kids. Schultz believed that using children gave the characters more authenticity. The CBS executives also had a problem with the jazz soundtrack by Vince Guaraldi. The music was too sophisticated for a children's program, they worried. They wanted something younger. I'm going to pause there. You know, I mentioned before about the uh, the music that uh, for Trans Siberian Orchestra. Well, the the music for a Charlie Brown Christmas special is classic stuff. And if you've never heard that, there the there's a soundtrack out there. There's actually a soundtrack uh, album that was put out uh, a long time ago, and you can get it. I mean, it's for instance, it's available on on Amazon or probably any of the other music services out there. 
the music is absolutely classic. It was done by the, the Vince Guaraldi trio as a jazz trio. It's just some beautiful work. They, they did some traditional Christmas songs in that and also did some original music for the, for the special as well. One of the, I think maybe the, maybe the most memorable of all of the original tunes they did was a, a tune called Christmas Time is Here. And there's an instrumental version and there's a vocal version of it. It's just a beautiful song. It's one of my absolute favorite Christmas songs. You know, again, it's kind of funny, you know, looking back on this, you know, these CVS executives, are like, oh, we don't know about that, 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 uh, that jazz soundtrack. Well, it's an absolute classic. And when, uh, when I was working in, in the music store I, I mentioned before, it was always one of our biggest sellers and rightfully so, because it's, it's really great stuff. So if you're looking for a good Christmas album still and you don't have one, uh, check out the, the Charlie Brown Christmas special, uh, album. It's, uh, it's well worth it. It's, uh, it's some just outstanding music that I've, I've always loved. And I, I think that you really love it as well. So anyway, back to the, the story here. They, that is the, the, uh, let's see, the executives wanted something younger. The CBS executives also thought the show was too slow. They didn't think there was enough action in a show dedicated to children with limited attention spans. There's a picture actually that in that screen share that I have. Uh, there's a picture that's actually Charles Schultz there drawing, uh, drawing his uh, his cartoon. Charles Schultz was a uh, he was a Sunday school teacher for many years. And the article continues here. Last, the CBS executives worried about the scene where Linus recites the story of the birth of Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Luke. It was too long, they believed, and too literal. The CBS executives assumed Americans, especially kids, wouldn't want to sit through a spoken passage from the King James Bible. Now, it's kind of interesting when you go through that. You know, when you, you read through some of the, exec, the objections of these, these executives, you know, they, they talked about, you know, the, the lack of a laugh track. They talked about, yeah, they were concerned about having uh, child actors doing the voices. They were concerned about the music. They were concerned about Linus reading from the Gospel of Luke. And, and you know, and you read through some of that, and you can think, okay, you know, I can kind of maybe see why they would would have some of the concerns that they did. Uh, but it's just funny looking back on this in in retrospect, because again, you know, this this is this is a this is a Christmas classic, and and yet there are always objections to it coming into you know during and you know, while it was being made, and when I guess I suppose it was being screened before it was released. And here's a, a comment from the uh, gentleman who did the. Uh, did the animation, Bill Melendez, they were freaking out about something so overtly religious in a Christmas special, Melendez said. They basically wrote it off. So, they, you know, Linus gets up and, you know, and he reads, you know, there were shepherds abiding in their fields. And I guess the, the, <laughs> the CBS, CBS executives had a meltdown. They didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> you know, Bill Melendez says they were freaking out about it. So I guess they had some pretty strong reactions. And it continues here. It says, Schultz didn't get pushback just from CBS executives. Members of his team were skeptical too. Melendez himself was hesitant. I was leery of the religion that came into it. And I was right away opposed to it, he told reporters. Luckily for Schultz, he was the beneficiary of a tight production schedule. Moreover, the network, the advertising agency, and the show's sponsor, Coca-Cola, had already promoted the show in TV Guide. Well, I guess once you promote it in TV Guide, I guess you kind of got to go through with it. You can't, can't back out at that point. The story continues here. Schultz had leverage but wasn't about to capitulate on key creative elements, especially the Bible reading. The network executives finally caved and aired the special as Schultz intended. That's why Charles Schultz was Charles Schultz. He intuitively knew the things Americans cared about, the things that gave their lives meaning. 
The longtime Sunday school teacher also knew the reading from the Gospel of Luke was the centerpiece of the show and a centerpiece of American life. It's a scene we'll always remember as Charlie Brown sinks into despair while trying to find the true meaning of Christmas. Linus walks stage center and, under a narrow spotlight, quotes Luke 2, 8 through 14. After Linus finishes, he walks across the stage and says, and that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. I guess today we probably call that a maybe a, a mic drop moment, right? You know, where he he goes out, and he quotes the 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 uh, quotes the Bible, and says, and that's what Christmas is all about. Well, you can't really say, well, I don't I don't think so. I mean, that they, he he kind of nailed it. Linus did. Yeah, that was that was his mic drop moment. The reading lasted less than a minute, and with those words from the Bible, Charlie Brown realized he didn't have to let commercialism ruin his Christmas. He picked up his fragile tree and walked out of the auditorium renewed. Linus had saved the day. I love this next paragraph here. CBS executives were certain the show would be a ratings disaster. Programmers were equally grim in forming the production team. We will, of course, air it next week. I'm not afraid we won't be ordering more. On December 9, 1965, the half-hour special aired, preempting the Munsters and following Gilligan's Island. To the prize of the executives in New York, 50% of American television sets were tuned in. The cartoon was a critical and commercial hit, winning Emmy and Peabody Awards. Linus' recitation was hailed by critic Harriet Van Horn of the New York World Telegram, who wrote, Linus' reading of the story of the nativity was, quite simply, the dramatic highlight of the season. Coca-Cola was inundated with letters from fans on the special. Here's one. Gentlemen, I'm writing the first fan letter in my 52 years of a rather full life to compliment you on sponsoring a Charlie Brown Christmas television program. I don't know when any, when the pro, I don't know when any program has delighted as many adults as well as children, and I'm writing to express the hope that you might be able to sponsor additional Charlie Brown programs. Grand Rapids, Michigan. And you know, it's interesting too when I was was going through this, reading through the article in preparation for the program here today. I got to thinking to myself, you know, this Charlie Brown Christmas special was sponsored by Coca-Cola in 1965. Now, do you think in, you know, we fast forward to 2021, I guess that's, what, 56 years later? We fast forward 56 years later to 2021. Do you think Coca-Cola would sponsor any program remotely like that today? I would say probably not. And and the reason I say that is because Coca-Cola has... Uh, over the past year especially, has uh, acquired a bit of a reputation as not being so much Coca-Cola as as it is now Woca-Cola. At least that's what I call it. I call it Woca-Cola. Because of the, the wokeness that the uh, the company is now pushing. You know, there was that thing where, I guess it was this past year, maybe back in the spring, where some employee leaked this. I guess it was a training session that was being used, a required training session, if I recall correctly. It was being used by Coca-Cola where they were just berating people for their whiteness and telling them to be less white. You know, they were pushing all this this critical race theory stuff. And and that's what Coca-Cola has become here in the year 2021. But it wasn't, wasn't like that back in 1965, or at least not so much anyway. And I, I think that goes to show you how far the company has come and and well as how far the country has come and, and not in a good way, not in a good way. You know, it's, it's really remarkable how corrupt businesses have gotten and how filled with some really, uh, I guess I would just, just say it. I mean, evil philosophy that dominates so much of corporate America today. So that's, that's a bit about the Charlie Brown Christmas special. It's, it's very interesting to, to read through that. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that article. And again, I'm going to put a, a link to that on the, the blog as well. 
Now, I mentioned, or at least I put in the show description notes here, that I'm going to have a Grinch of the Year award. You know, the Grinch of the Year award, that's actually a pretty easy award to give out. In fact, I think I would say this. I would give, uh, I would give this person not only uh, the Grinch of the Year award for his recent comments, but I would also give him a Grinch of the Year award just for his overall body of work in 2021. And I'm talking about the uh, remarkably awful performance turned in by one Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I'm giving him the the Grinch of the Year Award especially for his comment, uh, actually fairly recently, it was earlier this week in fact, where he basically told people that if they have unvaccinated friends or relatives, well, they should just not invite them over for Christmas. And uh, I'm going to play the uh, play the video here just a moment. And that test is negative. If someone in your family isn't vaccinated, should you ask them not to show up? Uh, yes, I, I would do that. I mean, I think we're dealing with a, a serious enough situation right now that if there's an unvaccinated person, I would say, I'm very sorry, but not this time, maybe another time when this is all over. Well, there you have it. There's Anthony Fauci. So if if you have an unvaccinated family member or friend or something, well, we're sorry. You just can't come over for Christmas. And yeah, it's every... Every holiday, you know, whether it's Thanksgiving, whether it's Christmas, whether it's Fourth of July, they trot this guy out, and he plays the part of the the ultimate wet blanket and killjoy, and that seems to be his, I guess, his primary goal in life is just sucking all the joy to the degree that he can out of everyone's life. You know, and it reminds me of something that Rush Limbaugh used to say. Rush, Rush Limbaugh used to have a, a saying that he would use on his program. And he often said that liberals were out there to spread the misery while conservatives wanted to spread the prosperity. And you can really see that with this, this whole COVID thing. You know, my whole life I've had to listen to how Christians, you know, Christians, oh, you know, you're just a bunch of Bible-thumping puritanical prudes. And you just delight in taking all the fun out of everything. And, you know, while everyone else wants to go out and, and enjoy their liberal ideas and these sorts of things. You know, you people just want to sit there and, and tsk, 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 you know, and, and take everybody's fun away. Well, I would say, how's that working out now? You know, the most liberal areas politically and otherwise in the United States are also the most locked down. I mean, New York's been turned into a prison camp. L.A., pretty much the same thing in, in Chicago. You know, they can't wait to, I guess, just right after the new year, they're going to have something take effect where if you're not, you're not vaccinated, you can't go to a restaurant or a bar or uh, any kind of uh, public facility, I guess like a uh, gyms or anything like that. You can't, you won't be able to do that in the city of Chicago. The progressive liberal city of Chicago, the big sophisticated city of Chicago, you know, they're running scared from a cold virus, essentially. You know, in I think it's in Oregon. I think they have a a statewide mask mandate. I mean, you you read about these things in other municipalities, states, cities, this kind of thing, and and there are always these very liberal, you know, what they call blue states now that want to to lock everybody down, mask everybody else, and force vaccinate everything that moves. You know, this is how these guys want to roll, and this is called freedom. This is called liberty. This is you know the, this is this is the 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 liberals out there enjoying their freedom. Well, I don't know. It doesn't seem terribly free to me. In fact, it, it seems downright oppressive. You know, it's not Bible-believing Christians who are demanding lockdowns. It's not Bible-believing Christians who are demanding forced vaccinations. It's not Bible-believing Christians who are demanding everything be shut down and everybody have to mask up. In fact, it's Bible-believing Christians who are fighting against this stuff. 
And I, th- and I hope that maybe people are taking notice of this. Because all these people that go around and constantly boast about how freedom-loving they are, they don't seem to love freedom very much at all. You know, in fact, they seem to be, uh, they seem to out-Puritan the Puritans. And, and I personally, I, I always try to avoid using the term Puritan or Puritanical in a, a pejorative way, because everybody does it. You know, they want to make the Puritans out to be the, the worst people in the history of the world, which they were not. They were Christian people. You know, they had a lot to do with the shaping of our country. They had a lot to do, their ideas had a lot to do with the fact that we are a, that we were founded as a, as a free republic. You know, Jesus said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The primary referent of Jesus' comment, he was talking about spiritual freedom. But spiritual freedom precedes and begets economic and political freedom. It's one of the great lessons we learned from studying the Reformation. It was only after the Reformation that in the widespread preaching of and belief in the gospel of justification by faith alone, that there was an explosion of political and economic freedom in those countries to which the Reformation came. That was the, one of the big points that John Robbins made in his book, Christ and Civilization. It's actually a, about a 60-page booklet. If you haven't read that, I really recommend it to you. It's a great book, and it, it really does, he draws the relationship between the the Protestant Reformation and the political liberties that those of us in the West have historically enjoyed. And also, it's these same political liberties that are being destroyed by Jesuits like, oh, say, Anthony Fauci and uh, various and sundry other liberals uh, who have always hated the scriptures, do not believe them, and fight against the, the implications of the scriptures. I mean, the, the scriptures everywhere defend and, and promote limited government, private property, liberty, freedom of conscience, these sorts of things, where you have these authoritarians like Fauci and his Jesuit philosophy that drives all of his thinking, you know, they, they don't respect liberty. You know, they don't respect freedom. They don't respect private property. They don't respect individual choice. You know, I mean, of course, it's been the liberals who've gone around for decades now, my body, my choice, my body, my choice. Well, I guess they think that's great if, you know, if that allows a woman to kill her kids, you know, those, those are the things they love to do. They, they think that, you know, my body, my choice means you go out and kill kids. But when it comes to, say, vaccines, oh, well, it's no longer my body, my choice. We're going to throw you on the ground, zip tie, and shove a needle in your arm. I mean, that's the philosophy of a lot of people out there. Jim Cramer, that guy, he's kind of a clown, really, but he's supposedly a, I guess he's a retired hedge fund manager, and he provides investment advice, which isn't particularly good advice. But he went on some rant, uh, I think, last week talking about that and and how the government has a right to force vaccinate you and blah, blah, blah. And you, know, and you see this stuff going on in, in so many nations. And it's, I mean, I have to tell you, when I look at it, it's disheartening and I'd be lying to you if I told you sometimes it's not a little bit scary to see the kind of medical dictatorship that these people want to erect. And I'm talking about people like Anthony Fauci. And of course, he's not the only one. You know, Francis Collins is another one. You've got all kinds of doctors. This uh, Lena Wynn, uh, who's a horrible person. Uh, she was a form. In fact, she was the uh, former director of uh, of Planned Parenthood. And now she's out there trotting out her her vaccine mandates and and thinks that, yeah, we, we really do need to make things uh, harder on people, harder on the unvaccinated. 
She thinks that's great. You know, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor of Chicago, she's running around talking about, yes, it's inconvenient and it's designed to be inconvenient. She's talking about her new mandates. And, and she seems to think that, that she's doing everybody a favor by, by this type of thing. You know, again, you know, this is tyranny. It's a vaccine tyranny. And it's coming from not Bible believers, not Christians. It's coming from those people who have rejected the word of God. And again, that's not surprising. It's not surprising to me as a Christian. It's not surprising to, to those of us who understand the, the true source of liberty, you know, that that comes from God. But I think it is surprising to a lot of people, maybe who just casually follow the news and maybe, uh, you know, and they kind of just imbibe what's told to them in the mainstream press. And they have this idea somehow that, that Christians are always, you know, these, these intolerant, anti-liberty kinds of people. And it's, it's the, the progressives and the, the liberals and, and these kinds of people who tout all of this progressive and liberal stuff. Uh, these are the people who really believe in freedom. Well, no, they don't. Uh, not at all. I guess they believe in the freedom to kill your kids. Um, I guess if, if you call that liberty, but that's, that's not really liberty to me. Uh, that's murder. Yeah, that's, uh, but, but that's, that's where, that's where liberalism leads. That's where the the progressive philosophy leads. It leads to lockdowns, mask mandates, and and uh, mandatory vaccines. That's certainly not a pretty thing. So that's so much for the. Uh, I guess we'll call that the the Grinch, the uh, Grinch Award for 2021. The other award that I give out is uh, the 2021 is the Ebenezer Scrooge Award. I give that to Pope Francis. Uh, for his role in continuing to push migration propaganda. There's a, a story out, and this is from December 22nd. So this is just from yesterday. It's in Breitbart. Pope Francis, no country can exempt itself from duty to take on migrants. So Pope Francis says that you have a duty to, to take on migrants. You know, you must do this. You have an obligation, blah, blah, blah. You know, and so not only do we have an obligation to mask up, to vax up, and to lock down, we also have a duty to take migrants in. Now, of course, when Pope Francis, he talks here, no country can exempt itself from the duty. What he's really saying is that the citizens of those countries cannot exempt themselves from the duty, not just to take in migrants, but what, you know, what, what's not said here is in pay for them. You know, you don't have a duty just to take them in. You have to, you have to financially support them with your, your tax dollars. You know, what, what he's really saying, and maybe this is another way of, of stating what Pope Francis, and not just Pope Francis, but this is something that is taught consistently in Roman Catholic social teaching, is that migrants, that foreigners, have a claim, a legitimate moral claim on the property of the receiving citizens of the receiving nation. So when, when people crash through our southern border, you know, they come into this country in violation of our immigration laws, not only are they right to do so, but you as an American have, or have an obligation, have a duty, if we want to take the, the Pope's term here, we have a duty to, to turn over your property to them. That's a complete lie. That is a, that's a lie, a sham, and a fraud. But unlike Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, who repented of his uh, Scrooge-like ways, I don't expect the Pope to, to ever repent of this because, well, because of who he is. You know, he is what he is. You know, he's Antichrist, and he's locked into the, uh, the philosophies of, of the system uh, of which he is a part and of which he is the leader. 
Now, it's kind of interesting when you, you go through this particular article. Let's read through a little bit of it here. It says, Pope Francis appeared to take a shot at Hungary on Wednesday, insisting no country can exempt itself from the obligation to take in migrants. On Tuesday, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban rejected a ruling by the European Union's Court of Justice that his government had failed to fulfill its obligation to relax its immigration laws. We will maintain the existing regime even if the European Court ordered us to change it, Orban said Tuesday in his end-of-the-year news conference. What's really interesting about this, and I want to pause on this. So here you have, in this particular article, you have this conflict set up, confrontation between Pope Francis on the one hand and Viktor Orban on the other. Now, if you just happen to casually follow the news, you probably you might come to the conclusion that Viktor Orban is the worst person in the history of the world. You know, he's he's this dictator, blah blah blah, all this other nonsense. Well, none of that is true. And there's an art. There's a reason why Viktor Orban and the Pope are on opposite sides of the immigration issue, and it has to do with their competing theologies. Of course, Pope Francis. Despite what some conservative Catholics would argue, Pope Francis is Catholic. He really is. You know, is the Pope Catholic? Well, yes, he is. Now, there are, are some Roman Catholics who say, oh, the, the Pope, you know, he's, he's, not really, he, he's not really a real Pope, or he's not really Catholic, or they're, they're trying to describe it in some way that, that he's somehow just way outside the norm for the Roman Catholic Church. Well, I mean, actually, the things that Pope Francis teaches are really, especially with respect to, you know, economics and, and politics— are very, very firmly within Roman Catholic tradition. He's really not teaching anything in that regard that goes against all the social teaching that's been given by the Roman Catholic Church uh, over the centuries, in particular over the last, say, 130 years or so. Now, there's a reason, as I said, why the Pope and Viktor Orban are, are sort of at loggerheads, going head-to-head here on the whole issue of, of migration. I'm going to share, do a screen share here. This is an article, and here's the, the headline of the article here. It says, Victor Orban is the world's most powerful Calvinist. Now, this article is from January 2020, so it's, it's about two years old here. Now, a lot of people don't know that. You know, Victor Orban is a Protestant. He's a Calvinist. He's from Hungary. You know, and a lot of times, you know, we, we tend to forget about this when we talk about the Reformation, but there was a Reformation in that part of the world in Hungary before Martin Luther, it's probably a good hundred years before Martin Luther nailed his his uh, ninety five theses to the Wittenberg Church door, and of course I'm talking about Jan Hus and the Hussites. Now the the Roman Catholic Church was able to snuff out the Hungarian Reformation, but you know there has been you know they they executed uh, Hus and they they basically scattered his his followers, but then Martin Luther came along. Now I know that it's kind of interesting here that. Victor Orban, he is married. His wife is Roman Catholic, interestingly enough, but he himself is, is a Protestant. And he belongs to the Hungarian Reformed Church. And you can see here in the headline Hungary's Prime Minister Victor Orban battles George Soros, global secularists, secularists, and anti nationalist elites to create a world safe for Christians. Of course, they could have added he also battles the Pope, who's his biggest foe of all. Let's just read this here, read a little bit out of this article. Not since the Calvinist William of Orange united a diverse coalition to save the liberties of Europe from the overreaching aggression of Louis XIV has a Calvinist politician attempted to shape the world order like Viktor Orban. Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, is a leader unafraid of his nation's Christianity. He loves his people and their history. Boy, that's pretty weird. 
<laughs> at least in today's world, it seems like all the leaders of all the Western nations, including the United States of America, hate their own people and are actively trying to subvert and destroy them. But Victor Orban, you know, I, I don't know how he got past the censors. I don't know how he got into to office, but he actually really seems to care about the Hungary and the Hungarian people and preserving the, the, the culture of Hungary. That's, that's actually shocking. And it drives, and it even talks about this in here, naturally, Orban's ideas cause the global elite discomfort. Well, I, I, would, go, I would actually go beyond that. The, uh, Victor Orban's ideas cause the global elite rage. I mean, they're like foaming in the mouth at this guy. I think he's, again, he's, you know, if you read just the, the usual propaganda from the mainstream news, Victor Orban's the worst man in the history of the world. You know, this kind of thing, which, you know, again, is, is complete hooey. And let's read down through here. This, oh, goodness. Okay, yeah, here it is. It says, Orban is a member of the Calvinist Hungarian Reformed Church. The denomination is the largest Protestant group in Hungary and has its origins dating back to the 1500s and the spread of the Reformation from Calvin's Geneva and Luther's Germany. Its doctrine is shaped by the Heidelberg Catechism and the Second Helvetic Confession. However, suspicion of the, quote, German religion made Hungary, is talking about Lutheran, uh, Lutheranism there, made Hungary more open to Geneva. As the official church website explains, the Hungarian petty nobles were still suspicious about Lutheranism because of its German origins. This could be the reason why the Swiss wing of Reformation, especially Calvinism, is more favored and popular in Hungary than Lutheranism. Uh, there had been some uh, military battles fought between uh, the Germans and the Hungarians. And in fact, there was a, a an essay that was published by the Trinity Foundation here in the fall, uh, in the fall of 2021 called, uh, was it uh, A Letter to My Dear German People by Martin Luther. And Martin Luther talks in there about how the Germans had made war on, on Hungary. So probably the, uh, the hesitancy on the part of, of the, uh, the Hungarian nobles uh, of Lutheranism maybe stemmed from that. Uh, I'm, I'm speculating a little bit, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. And in fact, here's a picture of uh, Victor Orban. It says Austra uh, Australian evangelist Australian evangelist Nick Nick Vujicic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but Nick Vujicic praying with Hungary's Prime Minister Victor Orban. Orban's faith is personal too. He recently met with. Uh, Australian evangelist Nick Vujicic, and shared an image of both men praying together. Vujicic said, Thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for meeting with me today and praying together for Hungary. Thank you for your welcome, and I'm overwhelmed by your courage and faith in God. I'm excited to see what God has in plan for Hungary. Looking forward to preaching tonight in front of 12,000 people tonight in Budapest, plus the online audience. God bless you, and God bless Hungary. That's a, a pretty remarkable thing. So you have this Calvinist prime minister of Hungary going head-to-head -head with the Pope. And there are no, no two philosophies out there in the world you can find that are as diametrically opposed as Romanism and Calvinism. So it's not surprising that these two men, uh, Pope Francis and uh, Victor Orban, uh, find themselves going head-to-head -head over the uh, over the uh, immigration issue. And, you know, and those of us, you know, who are Christians, that, you know, we need to pray for Christian leaders. You know, and men, you know, Victor Orban and, and others like him who are willing to stand up against the, the globalist predations of the, of the Roman Catholic Church state. You know, this is something that a lot of people don't know, and it's a real frustration that I've had for a long time when it comes to 
the way the uh, the immigration issue is reported, and this is true even when we're talking here about independent journalists. You know, there's a lot of uh, quality independent journalism that goes on out there. But when they talk about globalism, they tend to focus on people and organizations such as the World Economic Forum, George Soros, uh, the Bilderberg Group, and things of this sort. And, and these are are certainly bad actors, okay? I mean, there are certainly other globalists out there besides the Pope, but the Vatican is the the granddaddy of all globalists. I mean, they were globalists back in the Middle Ages when they, they ran Europe. You know, you couldn't really do anything in Europe without the Pope's permission prior to the Reformation. And what they're trying to do is they want to scale that up to make it, uh, to make it worldwide. You know, they, they want to, you know, not only do they want to go back to the glory days of Rome in the Middle Ages and impose a sort of a new, uh, I guess you might call it a neo, uh, neo-feudalism, they don't want to do that just in Europe. They want to do that to the whole world. And it's important to understand that. I mean, the migrant crisis here in the United States is pushed by the Roman church state explicitly. But yet not many, not very many people actually point this out. And that's one of the reasons why I'm discussing this right now. I'm giving the Pope the Ebenezer Scrooge Award for 2021 because he continues to try to essentially steal the nations of the world, steal the liberty of the nations of the world. He keeps doing this. You know, he has a, he has a, he has like Jacob Marley, he has a, he has a bad business philosophy. And let's see if there's anything else in here. Oh, goodness. Let's see. You always like when I find these things in advance, and then when I go back and I look at them, I can't find them. Okay, yeah, here we go. Yeah, this is a quote from the Pope. During my visit to Cyprus and Greece, I was able to once again personally touch wounded humanity and refugees and migrants. I also noted how only some European countries are bearing most of the consequences of this migratory phenomenon in the Mediterranean area, while in reality, a shared responsibility is necessary from which no country can exempt itself. Now, again, where do they, where do they get this idea that a shared responsibility is necessary or that no country can exempt itself from that? Where do they get that idea? Now, that's something that I've explained elsewhere, but one of the, the principal bases, one of the principal ideas of the Roman Catholic Church is a denial of property rights in the form of an idea called the universal destination of goods, or sometimes they call it the universal destination of all goods. And what what Rome teaches about property is probably not what you think it is. You know, a lot of times we tend to assume that everybody has this idea that the same idea about property rights as maybe you know most Americans would have, and that is that your property is your property and nobody has a right to take it from you. Well, according to Rome, actually they do. You know, what Rome says is that when God originally created the world, that he gave the world to all of mankind uh, collectively, not individually. But the Bible teaches very clearly that the Lord gave the world to Adam as an individual, and that his property devolved to his children and his children's children, and so on and so forth. So all private property actually traces back to Adam. And property is held individually. It's not held collectively. It's held individually by individual men. And that property is theirs. It's not something that, uh, that can be taken away uh, unless it's uh, for punishment of a crime, for example. But the Roman Catholic Church doesn't believe that. What they believe is that 
God gave the world to man collectively, and what happens is, and that's where they get to the of the universal destination of all goods. That it was, you know, that property was given to man collectively, and you know what Rome says is that well, private property is okay up to a point, but because God gave the world to man to men collectively, if somebody really needs something, well, they have a right to take it. So if, if somebody really needs something and you have what in the church's view, the Roman Catholic church's view is excess or excess property, the person who needs it has a right to take it from you. And if you won't give it to that person, then the church thinks that the government has the right to take it from you and give it to those people. Now, what that really is, is theft. I mean, that's that, that's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. What what Rome does is they posit, uh, they posit theft, you know, official theft. You know, theft is the official philosophy uh, when it comes to property of the Roman Catholic Church state. But they have this this idea that that that's somehow sanctioned by Scripture when it when it isn't. And so that's one of the ways in which Rome gets this idea that that you have as a as a citizen of a of a free nation that you have an obligation to fork over your property to foreigners when no such obligation exists. So for the continuing for his continuing work in pushing the false narrative of the obligation of receiving countries, go ahead and quote that for you now here in closing. So this is Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. Well, I think that's a good way to close the program. So thank you very much for listening tonight. It's been great to have you here. I wish you and your family a very Merry Christmas. And until next time we talk, may the spirit of truth guide you in all truth as you read and study God's Word.